Bristles brush against the metal, tufts of fur against polished steel, claws like daggers scratch and graze. The beast hungers for a meal. The key glistens in my hand. I can free him with a turn of the wrist. He'd nudge the door with his muzzle before the end of the final twist. He'd halt his pacing, he'd stagger his stride. His foot would fall forward, I'd run and hide. His breath clouds the air in front of his lips which are pulled in a snarl revealing teeth tips. He grumbles a growl from the depths of the pit, like thunder in the air after the lightning hit. It shakes your bones, it bricks the skin. When will it end? When did it begin? As the light hits its body and the shadow is cast, the cold rips through you ever so fast. Its face turns toward you as the beast turns its head, and the eyes bore through you those rubies of red. As the beast prowls forward, hackles raised and teeth shone. Breath stops in your throat, the smell so well known. It's damp, it's musty, it's cold in your chest. The smell fills the room around the unwanted guest. As the beast stands before you, ever so tall, you want some help but are unable to call. The key in your hand, you set him free. He will ruin, he will maul, all because of me. Wandering Fears, The Beast That Beckons a line of women bound, Raddick, Lena, Ventress, in chairs. Shepherd, or at least her dying voice, bound in a malformed bear. It chuffs, it sniffs, its lower lip quivers, and it opens its mouth, and its voice is... Shepherd's voice. Oh my god! And a muffled scream as we cut second five to angle on Lena, the bear behind her. It opens its mouth again. Shepherd's voice. And it turns its head to the left, and we can see that this is not simply a bear that has lost some of its flesh, but something else. It shares the left eye socket of its bear skull with the right eye socket of a human skull, minus its mandible, and molded right into the side of the bear's head. The two skulls share the only eye that remains. The other two sockets are black, empty. The bear's tongue makes it difficult to see, but there is an extra set of teeth in the bear's mouth behind its regular teeth, the lower set that a human would have. This bear is part human, part shepherd. Jock, concept artist. The bear was one of the very early things that we knew had to be solved. We looked at, I mean, it was, it was, it wasn't a good day at the office, but looking at d diseased animals, you know, the way that the skin can be malnourished and blistered and, those were the kind of things that, that Alex responded to um, because it just gave it a sick look. You know, the, the, the creature looked sick. Andrew Whitehurst, visual effects supervisor. The bear was one of the first things that we started doing concept art for. We had some very strange ideas. We tried, we sometimes, you know, we had versions where it was uh, sort of more like a wild boar rather than being a bear. Uh, and, and then uh, one of the concept artists, Peter, came up with the idea of um, sort of smooshing skulls together and he just, in sort of CG, just literally kind of mashed some skulls together and then just started painting on top of that. And that, that immediately, when I saw it, went, yes, that's a great idea. Uh, and showed that to Alex and he went, yeah, I really like that. And then it was a question of, okay, what then do we want to do to the rest of this bed? Tristan Versluy, prosthetics and animatronic supervisor. So 
not only was it sort of more, this bear was sort of emaciated and skinny and losing its hair, but it started to have elements of other things that are in this world, maybe other people that have been attacked by it or eaten by it or such. So I think having those kind of elements coming through, it also has sort of human teeth on the inside of its bear teeth. So all these little other mutations are sort of gradually fusing into things we meet along the way. Practically speaking, the bear is a physical puppet of neck and head, and for the attack sequences, a man in a padded suit or a black suit to be erased to get the right physicality and weight to the movements. Jennifer Jason Lee, Dr. Ventress. The bear was really scary, actually. Those days, we spent, I think, a week or more with the bear, and, um... Yeah, it was... I mean, it really... The, the animatronic beast that they made is remarkable. Natalie Portman, Lena Karens. It's been really lucky to have these practical creatures to work off of with the bear and the alligator, because even though um, I think they're going to be largely computer-generated later, it was really so helpful to have that to react to. It really changes everything. Um, it's, you know, one less thing you have to do as an actor if you don't, you know, have to imagine something. And we're all reacting to the same thing, too. It means that we all have the same picture in our head. And they're terrifying and they're very realistic. I mean, when the, when the bear comes up and starts nuzzling us, you really are so terrified. It's, you don't have to act that much. <laughs> Joe McLaren, stunt coordinator. Yeah, the bear is, we have, you know, different variations. We have the animatronic version. We just have, like, the rubber head version. Then we have Jack, who is our our stuntman and our um, our sort of animal performer. Jack Jagodka, bear alligator performer. So uh, they hired me because of the height. That's the one thing, because they wanted to have uh, a bear and alligator big, like, size-wise. So it helps visual visual effect and special effect guys uh, with the size and the movements. How much space do you take in a certain scene uh, with the action as well? Three, two, one, action. So, so how it works with the uh, with the action? So uh, my stunt coordinator of boss, uh, John McLaren, uh, she will uh, set up the whole action, and we go through rehearsals. So uh, in this particular movie, we rig a lot of uh, cables and chairs, and we have to time it perfectly with the animal going either through people, through chairs, through objects. Joe McLaren. So what we did for the stunt elements is we put Jack in a just like a black suit so that he could do the Gina elements and then he would come in to be the bulk he'd put the other suit on and come and be the bulk which helps with the lighting references and just kind of you know even things where we place the chairs because we have to leave space for visual effects then to put in the bulk of the bear Jack Jagodka with a bear um, we use stilts so uh, it'll be my legs uh, I'll be holding to the stilts and you have to walk like a bear as well, so make sure it's not mechanical movement. It's like really moving your shoulders. So really, uh, really, uh, you have to study the bear movements and practice that, uh, so it looks uh, realistic. And, and size-wise, the bear is uh, is slightly is, is is taller and bigger. So they want they asked me a few times to stand up and just bring my hands up, and I saw it on the video afterwards. And size-wise, it looks really, really good. It resembles a Crenshaw from Pathfinder or Dungeons and Dragons. In 2009's Monster Manual 2, Crenshaws are described as, quote, powerful cat-like creatures with faces that peel back to expose the bones and muscles of their skulls. 
This hideous sight, combined with the Crenshaw's savage roars, freezes its foes in terror. End quote. 2003's Monster Manual 3.5 goes further. Quote, A Crenshaw can pull the skin back from its head, revealing the musculature and bony structures of its skull. This alone is usually sufficient to scare away foes. Combining this scare ability with a loud screech produces an unsettling effect. End quote. Taken in tandem with Alex Garland implying connections to Swamp Thing in this story, touched on in Minute 22 and more closely in Minute 65, we can see how this malformed creature is not simply a bear trying to scare these women, or even to hunt. In Killing Shepard, it took a part of her into itself. Her dying screams it uses now as its own plea to be saved. The bear is a stand-in for Shepard, damaged by her grief over her lost daughter. But also it is a stand-in now for Thornson, who left the room to find Shepard, and while the script had her attacked at the doorway, in the film we do not know what has happened, only that Thornson exited and the bear entered. One creature damaged, afraid, changing, and unable to do anything about it, exchanged for another. Alex Garland, director. In the case of the bear attack, I think what we tried to do was, all right, so here's a sci-fi movie, sort of, and here's a monster, sort of, within a sci-fi movie, attacking the heroes, you know. And so we're in familiar territory. That happens a lot. And the question was what to do with the monster, what, how to make the monster how to make you feel something different about the monster and without getting too much into it because it's sort of uh, I guess it would break up some of the things we were trying to do within the story the monster relates very directly to uh, the husband of the lead of the protagonist and the context of the house relates to the house in which that married couple live and the behavior of the monster has something odd about it because it's primarily in a state of sort of despair and pain rather than anger and so it's it's a kind of existential monster in an existential space and everything in it and everything about it is echoing something else there are echoed forms embedded into it. There's echoed noises embedded into its throat. Its its actual form is an echo of something else, a tattoo. And the context of it is an echo of another geographical space. That geographical space is a house nearly identical to Lena's and Kane's. That tattoo is Kane's, a stylized bear on the front of his left shoulder. And remember, in minute 67, there was a topiary man standing outside this house, seemingly watching over the place. Another version of Cain, perhaps, born in one resumption of the Shimmer. Now he has come inside, as he did at minute 7. But Lena is not to be found alone this time, painting the bedroom she and Cain once shared. She is in the living room, and so erratic and ventrous, and yet another woman, not Lena, was at the front door, when all he wanted to do was find his long-lost wife to save him from the misery of this timeless, endless place, its refractions and its echoes, its repeating unavoidable doom. But what else can she do? Her eyes are not her own. And her sense of smell has been ruined by decay and ill design. So who is who? The woman the previous night was not Lena. The woman at the door was not Lena. Is any of these women not not Lena? Or is he looking for a daughter lost to leukemia and who should not be anywhere inside the shimmer at all? Did she pull the flesh off her own face? She cannot remember. Did she cut her own arms before she came to this place or after? 
or has she always lived here? You've always been the caretaker. That which dies shall still know life and death, for all that decays is not forgotten, and reanimated shall walk the world in a bliss of not knowing. Ben Kuchera, writing for Polygon, 30th December 2018, explains, quote, The person who exists at the beginning of a relationship, especially a long one, is not the same person who leaves it, however they leave it. This is a basic truth that's rarely discussed when we talk about marriage or any kind of commitment that's meant to last a lifetime. Anyone who vows to spend their life with another will eventually be replaced. But it's impossible to tell by whom. 2018's Annihilation tackles this grim reality, the question of who we become and how it impacts other lives at the heart of the movie. End quote. David Sims, The Atlantic, 25th December 2018. Quote, Every member of Lena's team entered the shimmer shouldering some sort of trauma. Ventress was dying from cancer, and her demise, a brilliant but terrifyingly rapid deterioration, reflects that. Lena, meanwhile, is wrestling with the loss of her husband, who disappeared on his own mission, and with crippling depression. Portman plays her like a walking ghost, echoing back questions in a monotone. When Lena sleeps with a colleague after her husband vanishes, she seems surprised at herself in the aftermath. In doing battle with her duplicate, the shiny alien eventually adopts a Portman-esque outer layer. Her internal conflicts are made literal. The unknowable world of the Shimmer is certainly extraterrestrial, but Garland knows that the most interesting thing about the place is what it reflects about trespassers like Lena. Weaponizing her fears against her is the smartest and scariest adaptation decision Garland made. End quote. Shepard died alone in the dark, dragged away from her new companions. Florence and will die violently, her rage echoed in the beast that destroys her. Radic will die quietly, giving in to her pain and transformation to maybe, finally, have some semblance of control. Ventress's body will be consumed from within and be replaced with something entirely alien. Lena, like Cain, will live long enough within the Shimmer, within the lighthouse, to face down her replacement. Where Cain spent too long with his and, as we will see in minute 88, he can no longer tell the difference between himself and his duplicate. The psychological made literal. Kuchera continues, quote, There's no puzzle box to solve in Annihilation. The relationship drama is that simple. The alien environment changes everything it touches, which is a sentence that describes everything in life, and Lena ultimately becomes only the second person to travel through it without being destroyed as she tries to understand what happened to her husband. The rest of her team is destroyed in varying ways throughout their mission. When Lena is reunited with her husband in the government lab after passing through the alien shimmer, she's a stranger to him, too. Two new people broken down, then built back up by indescribable pain, meet for the first time. We are the sum of our experiences and memories. When those experiences, whether it's losing someone to cancer or dealing with infidelity in a marriage, change the basic core of our personality, what is the likelihood that our loved ones are going to accept what we've become? The rates of divorce in the United States answer that question for us. The real surprise, annihilation, ends with an embrace. If the arc of the film is about experiencing trauma and coming to terms with the new self it creates, and the dialogue doesn't reject this reading in the slightest, then the ending provides a look at how to deal, in a healthy way, with people reshaped by pain. You can greet each other as strangers and accept each other on those terms, even if the original relationship doesn't survive. Maybe focusing on how two characters grow and learn to accept each other in their new forms is missing the greater point. If the alien environment is a manifestation of pain, trauma, and grieving, we see firsthand what it's like when someone doesn't find a way to deal with the experience. There are moments when we're presented with a person locked in place in the aftermath of trauma, 
ultimately passing their pain on to someone else. That kind of stunted growth is shown on screen as a mutant bear who eats people. End quote. Alex Garland tells Brian Bishop in The Verge, 21st February 2018, quote, It's about the nature of self-destruction in a literal sense. Cells have life cycles, and stars have life cycles, and plants and the universe and us. You, me, everyone. But also, psychological forms of self-destruction. It was born out of a funny kind of preoccupation I started to have that everybody is self-destructive, which is a strange thing to notice. I think a lot of self-destruction is very obvious. Gestures to cigarettes on the table. That's an obvious self-destruction, right? And if a friend of yours is a heroin addict or an alcoholic, then that's an obvious kind of self-destruction. But there are also... You've also got friends, or people you encounter, who are super comfortable in their own skin, and very self-possessed, and feel like they have understood some sort of secret to existence that you're not party to. And then you start to see, no, that's not quite right. It's more complicated than that. And fissures and fault lines appear. And between the fissures and the fault lines, you see bits of behavior that doesn't really make sense. Like they're dismantling things in their lives for no good reason. And it's a key part in the film, which is that there's an act of destruction of a marriage that the film does not explain. Because it is important that these things are not explainable in those terms, you know? Somebody dismantling their marriage, or their job, or their friendship, or something might have some superficial reasons why they think they're doing it. But that's not why they're doing it. End quote. A bear walks into a living room. Is it Thornson's rage or her alcoholism? Is it Raddick's pain and self-harm? Is it Ventress's cancer? Is it Lena's guilt and grief? Is it Kane's? Is it Kane? It bears Shepard's voice, but maybe that is merely the most recent voice it has acquired. Next minute, it will kill Thornson by tearing open her throat, removing her jaw, presumably her tongue, and her vocal cords. On the one hand, it is silencing her screams. On the other hand, it might be adopting them for later. Saying, help me, in Shepard's voice was not enough. None of these women will make the pain go away. Not, not Lena, not, not Lena, and not Lena. It's wife. Or is it looking for its daughter? It needs more words. It needs to explain what is happening inside its body. It needs to have a voice to match the transformation brought upon it in this strange place. Second nine, angle on Raddick, the bear behind her, backlit, Lena off to the right. The bear opens its mouth again. Shepard's voice. Its mouth does not form the word, but from somewhere deep inside it, it comes. It shakes its head and growls as the camera tracks left behind the women. And the bear also moves back. It circles behind the women, around behind Ventress. Second 24 angle on Lena, the bear moving to the right behind her. Lena breathes, heavy but steady. Lena, don't react. Cut to Raddick, second 28. Her eyes full of tears. She nods just a little. Angle down the line of women again, second 31. The bear coming around in front of them past Ventress. It opens its mouth. Shepherd's voice. Angle from in front of the women, second 38, as the bear passes in front of camera, filling the frame. It raises its head a little, and Ventress is visible. Second 44, angle down the line of women, but from farther back, from the kitchen. The bear now walks, where Thornson was just pacing, in minute 72. It has taken her place, 
and for the other three women, their situation has hardly changed. It stops in front of Radic. Beat. It turns its head abruptly toward her and growls, its own voice mixing with Shepard's scream. Second 54, angle on Radic and Bear, Lena visible, Ventress mostly obscured. Like Thornton approaching Lena slowly, the Bear approaches Radic slowly. Angle on Lena and Ventress, barely controlling their breathing. And time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. Annihilation. 